And welcome back to Gold Shields. This is Dan Murphy along with my partner in crime, Tom Smith. Every week we bring you the most compelling cases brought to you by the investigators and detectives who made those cases. We also have special guests and we highlight interesting, compelling uh, cases that we have one today that is a whale of a case, a whale of a story and uh, internationally known. But we're going to talk and we're going to get some stuff out today through our two guests that some in our audience may bristle at. And frankly, we are going to accept that because Tom and I are believers in being uh, a platform for the truth. We will never put somebody on this show who will come in and tell you a lie or further a lie or hold truth back from you. We are very big believers in using this platform for the truth. Today, you're going to get that. So I ask you to uh, keep an open mind and listen, because everything you're going to hear today is fact, not opinion, not conjecture, not spin, but fact. Tom, how you doing this morning? What do we got going on? Everything's great, Dan. Happy to be here as as always with two very special guests that we're looking forward to talking to. Uh, real quick, we got a great week coming up next week uh, in going down to Washington, D.C. for Police Week, uh, next starting on Friday until Monday. And the people we're going to meet down there are pretty much all affiliates of our show that we can't wait to see down there. Relentless Defender and Aaron Slater, who is actually going to be on next week uh, with the show. Can't wait to see him down there. Uh, the Wounded Blue organization with Randy Sutton. We're certainly looking forward to, to getting together with Randy. And kind of to top the weekend off, uh, we were invited and are honored to be attending the Cops Concerns of Police Survivors dinner on Sunday night at the Hilton. And we're actually sitting with Randy Sutton at his table. So we can't wait for that. It was an honor to be invited to there by Sarah Stone, uh, who we're going to see Friday, actually, while we're down there. So just a great week coming up that we can't wait for with honoring uh, the men and women in blue. Looking forward to it, Tom. Looking forward to it. All right, back to today's uh, program. We have as our guests um, Liz Collin and Bob Kroll. If you live in the Minneapolis area, you know these names, and they became much further known uh, after an event that took place in Minneapolis a few years ago, the anniversary for which is coming up, I believe, or did it just pass? It was end of end of May. Um, so Liz Collin was a WCCO, uh, which is a CBS affiliate local reporter for many years here in town, very professional broadcaster, very well respected. Her husband, Bob Crow, was a lieutenant in the Minneapolis Police Department and the head of the police union for the Minneapolis Police Department. Uh, two local um, persons known very well in the community, respected very well in the community. And then something happened uh, called the George Floyd incident. And the world changed. And I'm going to let our two guests talk about their experiences, what happened and what they learned after that date. So welcome to Gold Shields, Liz Collin and Bob Kroll. Thank you very much, uh, Dan and Tom. We're happy to, to be here and certainly appreciate all of your service. I always like to jump in before Bob. He's a little bit more long-winded, but he's, uh, <laughs> he, he's, he's on too, but we appreciate you having us. Thanks for having us, guys. It's our pleasure. So the whole world knows what happened in Minneapolis with a gentleman known as George Floyd, who, who passed away that day. The media immediately jumped up on it. It was declared to be a murder. It was declared to be racist, police brutality, all of that stuff. And, and an ugly video 
or series of videos made their way around the world very quickly. We saw police officers being arrested. We saw the city of Minneapolis burning. We saw other cities burning. We saw a tremendous amount of damage and outrage. And yet we weren't really told the truth, were we? No, absolutely. Um, and I'll just, uh, you, you guys kind of speak your own language as, as police officers, but I'll, um, I'll just kind of get going and then Bob, Bob can jump in. But um, I was really troubled by this from, you know, really the word go as a, as a journalist. Um, I, at the, the time, had been at WCCO for nearly a dozen years, but prior to that had traveled the country, sort of working my way up the ranks and, you know, believed in truth, believed in journalism. Um, but, but I was, yeah, just d- distraught. We were fine. It seemed where I worked going along with these lies, even though we had evidence, uh, to, to the contrary, almost immediately as to what really happened. I mean, this is the first time in Minneapolis police history that body cameras, uh, were withheld on an incident. And, you know, that was, that was for a reason. There was certainly much more of a backstory to George Floyd that the public wasn't told about. Um, also, we were told lies about the, uh, you know, maneuver um, that these uh, officers were, were using that day. And this Facebook video uh, obviously went went viral all across the world, um, but it really only showed part of the story. But there was a reason that it was just that video that was allowed um, out. And I know from Bob's point of view, uh, he saw a lot of things uh, that, that troubled him as, as he's never seen uh, before as a as a union representative for, for many years. Right guys. I was, uh, I was on the job for 32 years total and on the union board for 25. Uh, when this happened, I had, uh, been the president for several years and we had worked on a, a you know, the body camera policy. We, it was a, it was a joint venture with the police federation uh, and the administration. And we had an agreement in place where we were always allowed to, we as the union reps, the officer involved and the attorney after a critical incident were allowed to see the video footage uh, immediately upon it being available. And this changed uh, this, this incident broke our agreement, uh, our labor agreement broke our policy. Uh, they called the FBI in immediately on this and said, well, Hey, it's locked down. You can't see the video. So all we had to go on was the uh, cell phone footage taken from a bystander that made its way around the world and I just kept going to myself, there's got to be more to this. I want to see the officer's body camera. And I didn't end up seeing it until their criminal trial, like everybody else, watched uh, that stuff on TV. Wow. So just to set the stage, uh, the world pretty much remembers what happened. But the events of that day are, um, am I coming in clear, Tom? Is it fuzzy? Coming in clear. Okay, it's fuzzy on my headset. Okay. The events of that day are... Um, a call to uh, Cup Foods, a small, what we would call bodega in New York, uh, sort of grocerette store, uh, about a gentleman trying to pass a what appeared to be a counterfeit $20 bill to purchase something. That gentleman was George Floyd. Uh, first two officers responded. He had already left the store and was out in his car. The body cam footage shows that, that discussion at the car, him being pulled out of the car, and there's so much that goes on. I don't want to go blow by blow, but I will say that um, if you don't remember it or you don't know the case, he was he was handcuffed um, as part of the investigation of what was going on in the store and the money. And he began to act uh, differently 
he began to act somewhat erratically. He actually, from first confrontation with him, he was acting in a very highly agitated state. They put him down on the floor. It became clear there was conversation among the officers that it appeared he might be in excited delirium syndrome. They had been trained on this. Um, and they called for an ambulance because it was part of their protocol. This person appears to be in, um, in a crisis state physically. Something's going on mentally and or physically. Call for an ambulance. And by one point, they called for an ambulance a second time. They immobilized him as per their training. And George Floyd didn't make it. An autopsy report came out, but so much stuff happened immediately after that that sent this case into a new direction. Um, uh, what was your, Bob? Your involvement, if if you could, uh, from the scene that night, being the union head. Um, I know you couldn't get the you couldn't get the footage, the body cam footage, but. What was your involvement and what would be typical for this and what ha- versus what happened in this case? So that night, it was it was Memorial Day of 2020 and Liz and I had just returned. It was Monday. And we just returned from out of town. I had just I thought, well, I'm going to get a head start on the week and the lockdown of my computer in my home office to just start plowing through what I may have missed. And I got a, I was at it for 10 minutes and got a phone call from Officer Tom Lane saying they had what they thought was an excited delirium and possibly an in-custody death. At that point, they weren't certain if he was going to make it or not. Um, I, I basically said, okay, call me back. Uh, at, at this point, I'm ready to come in, uh, but let me know if he makes it or not. So uh, any in-custody death, any critical incident, I respond either to the scene or our headquarters. Uh, in this case, I didn't go to the scene. I went right to headquarters because the officers had cleared the scene. excuse me we meet downtown at our headquarters and what we do is sort this out and we just kind of provide a roadmap for the officers involved we get a very brief synopsis of them what of what happened i enact our our, uh, legal defense fund attorneys which are the federation pays for them to be enrolled in in a statewide plan um there's a, a panel of 12 defense attorneys that are on this that do specifically police officer involved critical incidents I make the introduction of the attorney to the officers at this time, just one attorney for all of the four, which is later termed to, determined to be involved officers, um, marry them up, tell them what's going to happen. And usually, like I said earlier, we get a chance to see the video coverage, uh, video footage of all the body cameras uh, of officers. They lock this stuff down, they being the administration. And, you know, as, as we know, it they end up, uh, formally charging all these guys but my involvement basically was at headquarters very up with their attorney us as union reps we do not have attorney client privilege so we basically let them know what the procedure is and the procedure is they do they do photograph as they are in their uniform they take all of their you know uniform equipment it's all recovered by our crime lab um they do urinalysis of the officers blood test and they talk with their attorney and arrange to give a statement, and that's where it goes. Well, within a day, they had Chauvin criminally charged, and the other ones uh, shortly, you know, thereafter. So, as we know, everything on how things unfolded after that. Bob, while you're at headquarters, uh, when you're at headquarters, are you having discussions or interactions with the 
kind of executive level management of the police department? Any any chiefs? Any yes. what actually, what's what's those conversations with, that are their view of directly with the chief of police? Um, we had a we had a, a good working relationship. This chief and I, I you know, been on the board, served under many different chiefs over the years, but um, we had a very good working relationship. Um, we're on the same page going, okay, they get their attorneys. Um, the body camera downloads can take a long time. And generally if it's going to take an excessive amount of hours, our, our goal is to get the officers processed and get them out of there and then make a statement on, on, you know, in the coming days. But prior to making that statement, we would always view the entire footage. Um, this one, we got everything sorted out. It was taking a long time to download. I was clearing this, clearing the courthouse about 3 a.m. When the chief's assistant had texted me and said, Hey, did you leave yet? Can you come back? Come up to the chief's office. And the chief himself is who showed me about three and a half minutes at the time of, of the bystanders video clip of it. And he says, I'm going to call in the FBI on this. And I said, Aren't you jumping the gun a little bit? Let's see who, but let's see the rest of the footage. I mean, I thought this could be doctored up. You know, it could have, it could have been spliced whatever whether there's got to be more in the story and from the moment the chief called the fbi in that changed the entire course of where our the protocol and the way our critical incidents usually go uh we were locked out of everything there from thereafter and they were looked at as criminal suspects so it changed um and basically at that point that's when i check out and it, and me and the federation are, are out of it they belong to their attorney through the legal defense fund plan Mm-hmm. Okay, so th- this event takes place. Liz, you are an active uh, reporter at, at WCCO, journalist. Um, because of your uh, marriage to Bob, uh, I'm sure WCCO was very careful with not assigning you any cases involving the police that might be in any way seen as a conflict of interest. But what happened after this um with your job at WCCO and how you were treated, if you could just go into that for, for a few minutes, please. Yeah. So prior to this, um, I had been the weekend anchor at WCCO for, for 12 years, and I was the primary fill-in anchor for our main anchors um, at the station. Um, so I, uh, I I went ahead and um, I was you know, a familiar face, I guess you can call me that, um, at, at WCCO, sort of one of the, the main people on the anchor desk, but I was immediately demoted, not allowed to, um, anchor the news again. Um, and, uh, I was, and I understood the the line about, um, you know, obviously before Bob and I even went on a date, um, I, I told my boss that, you know, this was the person I was going to go on a date with. And I, you know, recused myself from Minneapolis police union issues. I do have ethics and morals, uh, you know, as, as a journalist, but, but um, I went ahead and um, uh, was basically only allowed to report on COVID, I would say. Basically, that was my daily beat for nearly two years after this. I was kind of put in a closet doing a lot of the things that cub reporters w- would be doing. And, um, you know, I, I would speak up and, and talk a lot about the, this case because just as a reporter, I, I knew there was a lot more we were not reporting. Um, but but it was very clear um, the way the media was going to go with this. I know this is no surprise to, to you guys, but... Um, I talk about this in the book a little bit, too. There's a mandate put in place about a week after George Floyd that half the people we interview from now on at WCCO have to be non-white 
are from a protected class. Uh, so it was very clear to me, even though the evidence wasn't there for this case, for this to be racist at all. You even have the uh, attorney general eventually admit on 60 Minutes, you know, oh, yeah, I guess this isn't this doesn't have to do with race. But meanwhile, you have the mayor of Minneapolis apologizing uh, to, to black America the next day, the chief of police doing the same. But nobody wanted to talk about the black officer that was with George Floyd twice as long uh, as, as Derek Chauvin was uh, the Hmong American officer that was on scene uh, as well. Nobody wanted to talk about how George Floyd in the body camera video clearly says he can't breathe long before Derek Chauvin even arrives on scene. But just all of these things that were happening that the media knew about, but they hid. Uh, and I talked a little bit about the the training itself, this MRT, which they clearly talk about in their conversa- conversations to each other on those body cameras. Um, and, and these pages of the manual mysteriously disappear. Uh, the very next day. And nobody as a reporter wanted to ask those questions. But these are the things I'm kind of feeding the newsroom that we need to be talking about. But um, we weren't going to go with the, with that narrative uh, at all. And we, we had a unique perspective, you guys, from me, my role as president of the Federation and Liz being a reporter. So that's what prompted, you know, Liz to write the book. They're lying. Mm-hmm. Um, the media, the left, and the death of George Floyd. And it's an excellent book. And to our readers, we'll, we'll talk about it more. Uh, it's called They're Lying by Liz Collin. And it does highlight in very logical step-by-step or linear fashion, which is the way I think <laughs> as detectives, we think linear um, timelines, what happened in this case. And it goes in depth into certain things. One of the things it goes into depth on, and it should go into depth on because it is the heart of this case. You know, anybody who's ever been a detective or even police officer, for the most part, you should understand the basics of death when it comes to a prosecution, which is that the body is the most significant piece of evidence. How things look matter. Body matters most because what happened to the body, the body says whether I was killed or I died naturally. Now, in your investigation in the book, you talk quite a bit about the actual cause of death, what the report says, and and please tell our audience what you learned. Yeah, I just think timing of all of this um, was so critical as well, Dan. Um, You had the autopsy that was complete on George Floyd within 12 hours of his death. This is before parts of Minneapolis burned to the ground um, and these riots that went on for days. And I do feel if they were just honest uh, from the very beginning, so much of this never had to to happen. Um, It's still even difficult three years later uh, to think all all the lives that were changed because the lies that were told. But you had the actual... Autopsy then released a week later, so not not 12 hours when it's completed, uh, but a week later after the riots and all of the destruction. And it's on the same day, in fact, uh, just a few hours earlier, um, before an autopsy by George Floyd's family is released that the media touts as an independent autopsy. But you have uh, Dr. Andrew Baker, and, and in the book, I have some handwritten notes between prosecutors and Dr. Baker sort of going back and forth as he sort of changes his uh, tune a bit over the course of those days. But you have um, clearly a fatal amount of fentanyl in George Floyd's system three times, in fact, uh, the, the the lethal dose that the media wants to pay no attention to. Uh, you have what's called a paraganglioma, uh, which is a, a, a fatal condition um, in, in many cases, a heart condition, no strangulation marks. You know, there's so much was made of chokeholds. And again, this narrative that didn't really even apply to what was happening. Um, nothing wrong with his, with, with his neck at, at all. Uh, but 
The media instead chose to focus on the independent autopsy, uh, which basically was provided again by George Floyd's family that said he died from what you see on the video. That's basically what that autopsy um, said. Um, and that's what the media grasped onto uh, that day. And I do feel like there was some coordination behind the scenes that they were released around the same time for a reason. So I read the medical examiner's report and uh, Tom and I, as detectives in New York, have experience with that. We um were cops and detectives when we were the murder capital of America. We saw more than our share of those reports. And you learn how to read them and you learn what, you know, you're not, I'm not a doctor, of course not, but you learn certain basic things. And certain things, when I read the autopsy report, um, Hennepin County Medical Examiner for George Floyd jumped out at me. The first is where it clearly says no life-threatening injuries present. I don't know how you can have a report that says that in it and call it a homicide. The second is no evidence of petechia, which is always present with asphyxiation. Petechia for the audience is the small, uh, dark spots under the uh, eyes, under the on the lip, and um, and on facial skin that can be seen when someone is asphyxiated. It basically is your your blood um, vessels bursting because of the pressure. There was no ev- evidence of that. And lastly, the, the one that I found very telling, of course, is that there was not even as much as a bruise to his neck. And if you watch that video, the knee is on the back of the neck. Now, you could put all the pressure you want on the back of my neck. It's not going to disrupt the front of my neck, which is where my windpipe is. It's where I I would be asphyxiated from. So in reading that report and then the toxicology piece, like you pointed out, Liz, it's something like three and two-thirds times the amount of fentanyl in the system known to cause death, the enlarged hearts, all the other. uh, He was a walking time bomb to begin with. So when I read that report... And on, on the top, it's cardiopulmonary arrest, um, uh, what is it, exacerbated by or, or um, made worse by police subdual or restraint or something like that. The verbiage escapes me at the moment, but it seems to me that's thrown in there to try to make this, to, it's like a pile of sand. We're going to make it look like something. Um, I've never seen anything written like that that could stand up in court. It, it just... It, it boggled my mind. Tom, you, you read it as well. Um, have you ever seen anything so lacking in terms of proving a homicide? That piece of paper is everything. That body's everything. No. And, and it's funny when you, when I read it, when you sent it to me, I, I kind of got into the mindset of what I used to do if we had a homicide. And, and I'm a very note guy. I'll write a lot of stuff down on, on napkins, on stickies, on, on whatever. And what I would do is you kind of make two lists of the, you know, what's what you're reading and what's being said, and you kind of, you know, equal the lists up. And that never equaled themselves, you know, as to what a homicide is or what it reads as and the evidence that's in front of you. It just didn't. It didn't add up. Well, and a key thing is Dr. Baker walks all this back to after meeting meeting with attorneys and things and and they take a recess and the the thing is our question is is was he under duress was he getting threats what what happened in order for him to to change in essence and then they take and let's not forget the attorney for for the floyd family was ben crump at this point and it's his medical examiners that they take and run with after that i mean this is a hired report from the other end yeah, you have a couple different grand juries that Dr. Baker is a part of, um, and we were able to to 
examine some of that for the book as well. And he is asked, Dr. Baker's asked, you know, uh, were, you, were you threatened at all, you know, to come to this uh, conclusion? And he says, you know, I'm going to need to speak to my uh, attorney before answering that question. And they take a two hour break and he comes back and he says no. So uh, <laughs> it, it was just quite telling as to what was happening uh, behind the scenes. So one of my favorite sayings uh, that I learned in, in the NYPD criminal investigation course, which is an excellent course, it was uh, it's a saying by um, Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, who is the author of the Sherlock Holmes novels. And it says, it is a capital mistake to theorize before one has facts. And it seems in the rush to judgment here, the criminal complaint was drawn up uh, for murder three for Derek Chauvin prior to getting the formal report back from the medical examiner. They had a verbal report and they threw together, uh, hastily thrown together. I read it and it, to me, it almost read as though a defense attorney was writing it for him. It didn't really spell out a homicide. And they threw that out there and it seemed to be to quell some of the disturbance that was already starting more than anything else. Didn't make any real legal sense. Go to the grand jury, present everything. Wait till a, wait till the medical examiner's report comes in before you call it a homicide. That to me struck me as very unusual and very much politically based. Now, and unprecedented in Minneapolis as how things were handled. Too. Right. I could imagine that because it didn't sound right to us in New York. So back to you two guys. At what point do things start changing for you at work and then personally? Because a lot of stuff you guys went through. Please tell us what happened. Yeah, so uh, just myself, I talked a little bit about my demotion, but I figured, you know, it's temporary. Um, I'll get back. I was actually off the air for nearly um, a month and would sort of, pr I would produce stories that somebody else would would voice. But I also just thought, like, I didn't do, I'm not involved with this at all. I didn't do anything wrong. Why am I being, <laughs> you know, but we saw the mob, the mob come after uh, quite a few people in, in Minnesota. And, uh, you know, the media, I think, had a, had a chance to, to push back at that and uh, they didn't. Um, they they just went ahead and they they glommed on to these groups that were talking about racial justice, but nobody is following the money, following the power. And this is what I was was trying to say that you know there's a lot of money being pumped in here, guys. Uh, to you know to to what's going on. This is a presidential election year. We're putting all these people on television that aren't even telling the truth about anything, uh, but we're poisoning the public in a way to to believe that police are just out there to, to kill you. And I really had a problem with that that narrative um, when we were obviously privy to information that that shows, um, you know, the, the complete opposite. But um, so just uh, our, our home was targeted uh, a few times. We had a very large protest in August of, of 2020. And when I talk about that, that money coming in, uh, this was a Black Lives Matter protest. Um, Minneapolis sort of became ground zero for, for that movement that, that summer. Um, and we had about 150 people that showed up to our house in August. They um, brought along with them some pinatas that they, in, that we were uh, pinata effigies, I guess you could say. We were dressed as Klansmen. Um, it was just really appalling, and they they beat us um, <laughs> those pinatas in our driveway. Um, and there was a, another protest at um, the, the station during a six o'clock newscast. Uh, there were several protests where Bob worked at the the police federation. Um, but uh, many people were, were from out of town. They admitted that that they were being paid to to be there. Uh, but yet the media, you know touted these, these people as, you know, they, they were in the right uh, for going into neighborhoods and, and destroying lives in, in many, many cases. 
and one of them was uh you know running for state house rep position he was one of the uh, uh, activists at the protest at our house that beat liz and i in Kenyatta effigy and he was endorsed by the democratic party and later won he was elected uh, after that and liz had tried to um get things to the newsroom that had been all through about him but they had buried that until after the election so there's there's things behind the scene that she was privy to including that um and to, to back up a little bit i i ran for president after i had 19 years on the board and when i ran i, I ran on being um more out front and more public and always you know responding to the media and in my first six months we had a jamark Clark incident where officers, it was a, it was a critical incident where he was shot and killed after trying to disarm a police officer. And then, and so I was highly visible with the media and activists. They didn't like what I had to say. I defended the cops in that, uh, was made a public statement early on. And it turned out the investigation revealed that they did, you know, their actions were justified. So I became somewhat of a target for the local media active or the local activists that the media later glommed onto. So, um, it, it fast forward, I had met President Trump when he was in town. So the thing kind of, kind of spins around that. And, you know, as you guys know, um, working cops get complaints. I had, I had my share of uh, complaints, all of which I was, you know, you know, cleared of after investigations, but they jumped on that. So that's what became a target was myself, um, and our police federation. And then later they linked it. They basically, uh, dragged Liz into it and they had protests at her television station, uh, in addition to our home. Yeah. That, that made, uh, it made the news and, uh, listeners can actually go and probably YouTube some of that coverage to see the kind of stuff that was being done outside your home. Um, these are the tactics that the folks involved with this kind of stuff do now, in New York, we're used to paid agitators. This is something we've had for many, many years. And I was even told in the academy in 1984, these folks that you're going to be dealing with at certain things are paid to stand there and yell and scream and try to get a reaction out of you. So expect that they're professionals. And you'll find them from all over the world. And they come here, they give them 100 bucks a day or whatever it is, and ride them around in a bus and pay them, give them lunch. And this is what they do. It's, it's a living. So right. you're dealing with not just a bunch of people locally who are upset, but people who are riling things up. And it got to the point where um, parts of Minneapolis were burning. I mean, literally, the, the world watched Minneapolis burn, and then they watched the mayor direct to the Minneapolis police to abandon the third precinct. When I saw that, my heart broke. I couldn't believe, uh, you know, and I know people that were there, and it just – it was shocking, a shocking uh, retreat, I, you know. Unlike New York, guys, we have five precincts and, and I worked in all of them at one point in my career. Um, and, but I was a patrol officer in the third precinct. It was my district, the, the uh, corner of 38th in Chicago where this happened. And I was a patrol sergeant later on in that precinct, too. So it, it really it, it broke my heart. That was my favorite precinct to work at during my entire career uh it was a it was a great precinct you had some of the best cops on the job worked in that precinct for years and uh it, it broke the hearts of everybody that had ever worked there and that precinct didn't have to go down that's part of it too is the national guard and mutual aid were intentionally withheld they wanted to give that precinct up as uh, some type of um, you know, moral victory for the protesters or, or a give back, if you will. And it didn't have to happen. 
Um, I had been in charge of lower scale, obviously, riots. And it was always this, the leadership at the scene, boots on the ground that were in charge. And they quelled other disturbance with disturbances or riots within hours. The, all the shots were being called in this one. We don't even know if it was the mayor, the governor, or who, but it was way beyond the chief of police and the command staff making these calls. And they, after, you know, half a billion dollars had been done to uh, in damage to the city and 1,500 businesses destroyed, um, the finger pointing between who was at fault between the politicians took place. So this is a highly politically charged Tom, please. No, you know, no, right. just real quick. When you when you involve and when you involve politics in police work, it never, ever comes out right. It never it, there's never a good ending to it because politicians are not cops. They're not walking in our shoes. They don't understand the even beginnings of how to handle things or what should be done. And when they invoke policy and procedures and something to this magnitude, it just makes the situation much, much worse. Yeah, and I wanted to give a voice, partly another reason I, I, I did the book was to give a voice to these officers. Uh, you know, the, the department now is nearly 40 percent, uh, down 40 percent from what it was, from nearly 900 police officers to around 500 now. But uh, the, these cops just went through horrific things. Um, so I wanted them to, you know, share their stories. And luckily they were few of them were, were willing to do so um, in the book, They're Lying. Uh, but this is a, a part of history, and it was just kind of a way to set the record straight um, because, again, I just didn't think that this had to happen. Yeah. So so politics took over. Uh, Mike Freeman handed the case over, in, however it happened, to the attorney general of the state, which is another, I would think, highly unusual move. Uh, Keith Ellison uh, made sure he took full advantage of the spotlight that he was given. And uh, the case goes to trial. Uh, the, the trials happen. And uh, Liz, you talk about the training. Um, tell us about what you learned about the training that the officers actually had, what the department said, and what evidence you found of that. Yeah, just just going back a bit, um, these pages of the MRT, Maximum Restraint, Restraint Technique, went offline uh, the very next day. They were put back online a few weeks later by the time you know, the media mob had kind of moved on to, to other things. Um, but there was just uh, so little uh, mention of that in court as well. I say with the court case, it was the same sort of thing. It wasn't you know, what was talked about, but more importantly, what was not. Um, even the body camera footage, it was highly edited down uh, to just a couple minutes uh, that was allowed in court. There were 14 pages of jury instructions. That's never happened before. Uh, it's usually a page or two that's handed to a jury, but it was sort of this, you better find this guy guilty or else mentality. Um, but this this MRT, you even had the chief uh, say this wasn't how they trained. You had the head of training talking about how this wasn't a part of training. It clearly was. And uh, many people on the department were very upset uh, the the lies that were perpetuated about. So that. the training itself, the MRT maximum restraint training, part of that includes uh, using the knee to the back of the neck to stabilize or immobilize somebody so they don't hurt themselves or others. Is that correct? Right, guys. You would you would remember from back in the you know in the eighties nineties, we commonly called it. It was a hog tie. You had a, a 
bolo rope and you would basically hook people's wrap people's ankles up that were combative when they were in handcuffs if they were kicking wrap them up and clip them to the back of the handcuffs at least that's what we did here for years in minneapolis and the mrt was an evolution of that where it made it safer um they had some cases of asphyxia where people couldn't breathe and they were placed face down in, in that old version what they call the hog tie well the mrt is a way to secure the ankles uh to the back of the handcuffs like that and that's what these officers were preparing to do they even verbalize it on their body camera on you know it's maximal restraint technique and they there was a significant amount of training put into this technique as they developed new straps for this um and and the proper way to hold them into position to apply it and then once it's on to position them so they don't asphyxiate and things like that um, so there was training, and, and basically the chief and, and others got right on the stand and lied about it. Bob, did you undergo that training yourself as a member of the department? I did, yes. Did you see anything yeah. done by any of the officers on the scene that violated the training that you received? No, they were they were preparing to apply MRT, and then they didn't. And it's, it's holding in position there. And, and an interesting part is, is if you look at the entire footage, too, Chauvin's knee is not on the back of the neck the entire time. He's shifting, he's moving, it's across the shoulder blades. And the slide in training presentation that Liz refers to and has a side-by-side in the book shows the exact same positioning of a training slide that we all, myself included, attended. Um, you know, the, the interesting part about this, guys, is it, it, beyond the book, Liz is currently working on a documentary, and we've got uh other officers involved in this coming forward and it's going to be it's going to be pretty profound when when they're interviewed on what training was uh the documentary i can't i mean the documentary is going to be great because uh, there's nothing like a visual uh visual evidence uh, there's nothing like that i got one question bob was and i was the entirety of the body cam footage ever released in its entirety not how we ever did it in the past. I, I used to be able to sit in, in fact, guys, that in my position prior and prior critical incidents, I was actually looking back used by the police administration on this because they didn't have the intestinal fortitude to hold a press conference like some other agencies do and say, hey, in this incident, you know, this is where the, the suspect shoots at the officers. This is why the officers actions. A lot of agencies across the, the country do a great job of that. And what that does is it, it quells, you know, tempers in the community and it, it serves to de-escalate things and, and not lead to riots when they get out in front with this. Our administration never did that. And I, they used me to do that. So that's why I became a, you know, a, a public figure in that aspect. But this is the only time we've never been allowed. I used to go down to the chief's office and, and review this footage, rewind, watch it as much as I wanted to see other things and they would even point things out to me say say hey in your press conference say this because they couldn't do it um this we never saw any of it they and they they put it under the they swept it under the rug that the fbi won't let us and they're called in the department of justice was called in fbi was called in and it's a lockdown according to them and that's what they used to not share this um I'll say, Tom, that um, they they never publicly released the video. In fact, it was the Daily Mail who leaked the video uh, months months into this. 
um, and kind of gotten a bit of bit of trouble for it. But it, you know, if if they're going to these great lengths to hide something, you know, you should you should be questioning it. <laughs> that's for sure. And that's what I always say about this case: whether you have a connection with law enforcement or not, this should really scare people. Uh, this is supposed to be our, our justice system, and this was really anything anything but. So you have four officers convicted. I'm sorry, Bob. One other thing they lied about that is in the book is that they said the MPD never had any prior encounters with George Floyd. And that's quite the contrary because 11 and a half months earlier, he was arrested on a drug charge and the body camera footage from that incident, he displays exactly the same behavior that he did on the day that he died. Um, in this case, they get an ambulance to the scene and he gets medical treatment, but it was, it was identical footage and it happened just under a year earlier with our undercover narcotics guys. I know you guys work anti-crime, very similar to this. They had undercovers on a buy from, from him and they took him down right after making the buy, bunch of fentanyl and that's recovered. Well, we were both work narcotics with lots of undercover, uh, hand-to-hand buy and bust, we called it operations, it's sa- same thing. Uh, he's definitely the guy that did it. Undercover didn't lose sight of him. You moved in, you grabbed him, you found whether it's your pre-recorded buy money or whatever on him, and you have your felony case against him. Um, so the the lies here just keep stacking up. And as a result, we've got people losing businesses, millions and millions of dollars. I remember when this was over at one point, the mayor of Minneapolis kind of meekly asked President Trump for $500 million in assistance to rebuild the area that was burnt down. And President Trump told him, go pound sand. You let it happen. You didn't stop it. And and now you want me to bail you out. There was so much politics involved in this, so much craziness. Um, I feel for the innocent people that live in that area that had to put up with this, all the craziness 24 seven. And, uh, and if I'm not wrong, the area around this experienced more than its share of violence and shootings in the aftermath of this. Is that right, Bob? Oh, you bet. We've had the last three years is the highest three consecutive years for homicide ever on record in the city. Um, if you pull out the year 1995, when we became known as Murderapolis, we, our highest murders ever were 97. Well, the last three, and, and nothing came close to that. I think prior to that, the only other comparable year would have been 62 murders in one year. The last three years were in the 80s and 90s. And, and so the violence continues, and, and the carjackings is the big thing right now. Um, like Liz said, the department is way down. And most importantly, there's no proactive policing going on in the city anymore. One, they have barely enough cops to perform core services. That's 911 response and basic investigations. And you guys know that the thing to bring the gun violence down is proactive police work. It's, it's undercover units, things like that. They're gone. The proactive policing is gone. You know, and Minneapolis uh, is, is a much different place uh, in many ways. Anybody who's an observer or lives around it can drive down there and you can see the difference right now. And that's because of the lack of cops and the lack of uh, morale and confidence the cops have that they're going to get back. And you can't blame them. So I'm kind of exactly. kind of jumping around a little bit, but let me let me just go back to a couple of things. George Floyd at the scene, his behavior as seen on video, the whole world saw it. He gets approached and he starts saying, don't shoot me, please, Mr. Officer, please don't shoot, don't shoot, don't shoot. It's a completely irrational um, moment. He's not making any sense. Nothing like that is going to happen. Um, and then he goes on to start saying he can't breathe. He appears to be disoriented. 
every behavior that he exhibited from the from the on video that I have seen falls in line with what you see under excited delirium syndrome, which is a medically accepted diagnosis. It's not just some theory. And then fentanyl overdose as well. It causes that lack of, of ability to get air. It causes that difficulty breathing. It causes that disorientation, the agitation, the uh, hallucinative state in certain ways. Everything about his behaviors was there prior to him being restrained on the ground. And that seems to be conveniently overlooked by those who wish to say that the officers subduing him caused all that stuff to happen. Um, yes, including the 15 minutes that he's in the store, the store footage before the officer's call, before he passes the counterfeit bill. Um, it is further evidence of that. So now, he, he, go ahead. He goes back to his car. He's in the car with two other people. What's the story on the two other people? And uh, Bob, what, what what have you learned about what was really happening at that moment? Were they engaging in a drug deal? What, what was going on? Uh, he, he in in my opinion, he was he was feeling the effects of the narcotics that were in his system. You know, he had eleven plus nanograms of fentanyl. Um, but what's interesting is his front seat passenger was his drug dealer, and they uh, cut a deal with him, they being the prosecution, that he wouldn't self-incriminate himself. He never got charged uh, with anything. Um, well, and I'll, ju- I'll and- just jump in. This is uh, Maurice Hall is his name, and he actually gets on a, a Greyhound bus bound for Texas uh, right after this incident. He's allowed to, you know, go ahead and, and leave town. Um, so I talk a little bit about um, that in the book uh, as well, but um, certainly there were a lot more questions for him that were never asked. Yeah. Um, th- we could probably talk all day about this and your exhaustive research that you did, Liz, is so well documented in the book, They're Lying, and I can't recommend it enough. I read through it in two nights by my nightstand. I just couldn't put it down. Uh, it's all filled with truth. Ladies and gentlemen, this is the truth of the case. George Floyd did not die as a result of a knee to the back of his neck or three other officers holding him on the ground to immobilize him for his own safety. They held him in a very gentle way. There was no injuries to him that indicates that he was hurt and killed by the police. None. Everything is quite the contrary. This was an overdose that triggered existing health conditions that were serious. And that is brought out very clearly in your book. And I'm certain you'll do a wonderful job in the documentary bringing that out. And I look forward to it. And we will keep our audience updated on that. Um, But in the interest of time, we're going to let the both of you go. But any closing statements you want to tell our audience about the truth here? uh, We've heard about all the lies. Uh, Please take advantage of this opportunity and tell us what else you know that you think the audience might want to know about this case. Yeah, just um, just talking a bit about the documentary, which I appreciate you guys giving a plug for. Um, I have a website, uh, well, a couple different websites, theliexposed.com. So it's theliexposed.com. And that's where links are to the book and more information about the documentary. Bob and I have kind of been traveling uh, around Minnesota doing some some book talks. I call it Bob's Bookmobile, um, even though I'm not sure if he's actually read the book yet. Um, but um but it's really it's it's been touching, you know, to to hear from people about how this has affected um, so so many, uh, you know, not only across the state but but across the country. And I and I am really looking forward to the documentary um, because it's 
honestly incredible. Um, the amount of medical evidence, um, people coming forward um, to talk about that for the very first time, but also these these family members who, you know, their their sons are in prison now. Uh, they're talking uh, for the very first time publicly. And, you know, what this has done to, to their lives. I mean, Alex King's mom, um, we've we've become friends over the last uh, few months, and I didn't actually even know her before, before putting out the, the book or anything. And she sleeps with the book under her pillow at night. Um, but, you know, this is a, a Minneapolis school teacher. She lives in North Minneapolis. That's where Alex grew up. He was kind of known as the poster child uh, for MPD. And three days, um, you know, into being a police officer, he's sent to prison. Um he's one of the rookie rookie cops there. And there's just a lot of these stories that, um, you know, I think the public needs to, to hear the truth um, because we've been lied to for so long. And that's a common theme we hear is everybody says, Hey, I couldn't put it down. Um, we've, we've got feedback like crazy that people are reading this book in a couple of days. Um, it, the same, the same theme we hear. And also it's on audio. When you go to the lawexposed.com, if you're not a reader, you like myself, you can get it on audio. And then let's tell them where they can, they can find the documentary. Yeah, that website is they're lying the movie.com. And um, I'm working with a nonprofit group called Defend the Heroes. Um, and, and they work for free to help kind of um, counter some of this crazy uh, that goes on in the policing uh, world. So they've been great to work with. And it's a crowdfunded documentary. So I always like to ask for donations. If anybody's listening and and is willing, the production work is is a bit pricey. I'm a, I'm a news person. So it's a di- little bit of a different different world. But um, I, I've really had so much generosity of people willing to, to help out how they can, uh, which I'm which I'm grateful for. So that's uh, they're lying the movie.com. And we hope to release it in the fall. So maybe Bob and I can come back and and talk about that once we're once we're ready. You have, you have an open invitation, uh, especially when that comes out, uh, you know, we'll get that out because it's important, you know, like Dan says all the time in the, the preamble of the show, you know, this is about the truth and the truth sometimes hurts, you know, but it's the truth and it needs to get out there. And you guys did a great job, Liz, with the book. And I'm sure the documentary is going to be very successful and, uh, we're here to help you out. Thank you guys very much. Thanks. You guys have a great week at uh, uh, Police Week. I was actually planning to go there three years ago for my only time to experience that, and uh, COVID prevented that. So I, that's something I always wanted to do and is still on the bucket list. But uh, have a great experience there. Say hi to Randy. We will. We will, absolutely. Uh, Bob Crow, Liz Collin, can't thank you enough for your time, for your work, for your dedication to the truth. Uh, keep the good fight going. Um, just know a lot of us support you. A lot of people feel that the truth is important. And um, it's called, the website again is they'relyingthemovie.com. Uh, go on there, make a contribution, even if it's a buck, five bucks, something. Help the cause of the truth because it matters. Thank you again for being on the show today. Tom, take us out. Thank you again, Liz and Bob. It was a pleasure. Uh, And once again, like we always do, uh, say a prayer for the men and women in blue out there doing a thankless job. They volunteer their time, their lives to protecting you. And they don't know you, but they will go out there and risk their lives for you every day. So keep them in your prayers. As we always say here, uh, for Liz and Bob, for Dan Murphy, my partner in crime, This is Tom Smith once again telling everyone out there to please stay safe and we'll see you soon.